The title for the evening talk is Relinquishing. Dictionary says to relinquish is to renounce or surrender a possession or a right. To let go. This being a the retreat that we have, a family retreat. I'm not going to talk so much about letting go of things, of uh, desires, but actually letting go of children, of partners, and inevitably, because it's also part of this equation, letting go of a sense of possession of ourselves. three aspects that are very closely connected. Relinquishing that possessiveness to us partner, to us children, to us oneself. Surely while our children are babies this is not an issue. Letting go is, is not the problem. The problem is, is the sleepless nights and uh, how can we cope with the demands of these tiny little bodies and minds? How can we tend to each and all of the needs? But this relationship of dependence that uh, babies are into, and parents in relation to the babies, that shifts, of course, and you know that very well. Each one of you know it much better than me, who's kind of forgotten it. And so, as children grow up, this relationship needs to be re-examined, and very closely. And of course, we've done that in a variety of ways within this retreat, through the parent discussion, through interviews, and of course in the dining room, constantly. Or wherever parents get to talk to each other. I want to focus in, in one special aspect of this relationship that uh, really needs uh, examination, namely this sense of possessiveness, this sense of ownership, the sense of ownership that accompanies the my child. I mean, my kind of in, in uh, capital letters, in bold letters. And, and it has many facets, this sense of my child. One facet that was brought up very clearly yesterday in the parenting inquiry is the sense that my child represents me. 
It's like an extension of me. And therefore, I need to sort of mold that child so that it's not going to reflect back on me in a way that I do not wish to be reflected back in. And I mean, check it out. Every time that you have an opportunity, check it out. When, when, when you see your child doing something that you don't approve of, just, just check how much of that disapproval has to do with that reflecting on you. And how much of that has to do with the well-being of the child. Just, just examine it. And, and you'll see, of course, because it's a, it's, a, it's a mixed thing. I mean, it's a very natural thing to do. Another facet of this ownership has to do with the tendency we all have in one to, to lesser or greater extent to try to control the circumstances and people around us. Even to control ourselves. Which, of course, is largely an illusion. <laughs> the control we can exercise on others and on ourselves is very limited. Most of the features of life are totally out of our control. So, these are some ingredients of this sense of possessiveness that uh, limits us in a way. And it's true that possessiveness can go to extremes. I was, I was recently uh, rereading uh, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. I, I picked up this which... Uh, um, just, just happened to be appropriate here. Uh, there's a um, man, a secondary character in the novel, um, who is, um, wants a, a, a horse to pull a cart that he and others are on. And the horse cannot, doesn't, doesn't have enough strength to do that. And he starts flogging it and flocks the horse to death. And some people, to death. And some people are really shocked at this. Not everybody, but some. And he said, well, it's my property, I'll do what I choose. It's my property, I'll do what I choose. There's a little bit of that, isn't it? I mean, as if this is a, an entitlement that we have. Of course, that's, uh, in, in its extreme forms, that's what abuse is about. Abuse occurs. It's an extreme form, but occurs. Occurs within the family, and occurs with the world around us. 
just uh, talking with somebody in the staff room and uh, he told me that uh, yes in the today's paper there is a information that Congress has approved the uh, drilling in Alaska. That's an abuse. I mean, just because we own, or somebody owns that land, or the government owns that land, that doesn't entitle it to do that. But anyway, I mentioned that there are extremes, and it's not the extremes I want to talk about. I want to talk about the, the very sort of run-of-the-mill daily sort of occurrences where we don't let go, where we fail to let go. Where this my colors the relationship. And I can say for myself that for much of my life, this was a fact of life. Where I saw my partner or my wife at the time, my children, as somehow being in the sphere of that which I possessed and handling it that way. It reflects very little wisdom, but somehow is not that unusual. And, and in that move, one of the things I, I do quite clearly is uh, try to impose a certain agenda on these members of the family, which of course it was in a way that an agenda for myself. And doing that because of mine, in a way. And that can be done very kindly, too. In fact, uh, um, I have three sisters, and all four of us have been scientists. That's not a coincidence. Our parents, very loving, no question about that, very loving, uh, totally devoted to us. But they were frustrated because of lack of knowledge at a certain level. Not having gone to the university, etc., etc. It's a different uh, period, a different country, but even so, can be described like that. And, well, so they had this influence on us. I'd say, in, in my case, I didn't resent being a scientist until it took me 35 years to discover that that wasn't very fulfilling. 35 years of, of scientific career. I was in my 50s when I realized that there was more to life than science. But then again, I colluded with that. But that's not uh, really true of my sisters one of my sisters anyway, who really had to struggle hard to get out of science, and she became a minister, in fact, um, with great resentment from my parents. 
on the basis of the love to, of her. But a possessive love. Now, the real issue here, the very, very important issue here, is that in exercising this possessiveness towards others, particularly our children in this case, true, we harm our children, but we harm ourselves much more. Harm ourselves. Because, you see, this pursuit of, of control can only generate suffering in ourselves because it's impossible. It's doomed to fail. It's not going to work the way it's meant to work. Anyway. may distort somebody's life, perhaps but it's not going to give the fruits that we expect. So, sometimes we have this sense of impending failure, because we get into an impossible pursuit, and, and we begin to, to sense that this ain't going to work. This morning, in the parenting discussion, um, a mother spoke very eloquently and, and very clearly about, some of you may remember that, um, about her holding back from her child in the anticipation that the child would, would leave, would be out of her sphere somehow. And so, look at the price we can, we may pay. I, 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 by the way, I'm not being critical of this person at all, on the contrary. It's the awareness that matters. But if we are not aware of this, we can pay an enormous price. for insisting and in holding on. And so we deprive ourselves of the possibility of developing an expansive and freeing relationship with life. With the world, with others, and even with ourselves. That's uh, very important. Let, let me talk a little bit about what that means in regards to ourselves. When the, the Buddha wanted to describe uh, the self, I'm told, uh, I, haven't, I haven't read it anywhere, but I'm told, I think, it's a, it must be true, I'm sure. <laughs> You'd make five little piles of seeds in front of him, which are 
called in the translation the five aggregates. The original word is kanda, so in Pali. And so these piles of seeds or grain, whatever, represented who we are. You see, that's these five piles. That's me, that's you. And, and you, you can see that the parts are kind of arbitrary, you know. And, and the seeds are, are not glued together in any way. It's not a solid thing. It's a conglomerate. Uh, by the way, the, the fact that there are five piles is that there are five aspects of ourselves that the Buddha was describing. First pile, the first aggregate, is body and form. Material form, you could call, includes a body, therefore. And the other four are aspects of the mind. The feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness. And it is not important in the context of this um, evening anyway, exactly what each of the five or four aggregates means. Um, the translations vary, the interpretations even vary sometimes. But what matters is that the aggregates cover the whole of what we are, all aspects of who we are. The physical body, first aggregate, and the mind, the other four. However you divide them. And the divisions are not very important because, you know, you could get some seeds, put them in a different pile. It's not the issue. The issue is to recognize that we are not solid, we are not monolithic, we are a, a conglomerate. And, and, and furthermore, I add that the aggregates of one person are not that separate from the aggregates of another person. You know? I mean, as, as I'm speaking right now, what I'm saying did not originate right here. It, I, don't, I don't know where I picked all this up, you know. I, mean, <laughs> I, I picked much uh, from you. I mean, I've already quoted two people from this group. And, and so, they're not thoughts particularly. <laughs> they're not our own property, copyright, certainly not solidly, ingra solidly ingrained in this body-mind, etc. So, so, to understand then that we are some kind of a compact of things put together with some unity, with some tradition, sure, now, there would be the aggregates are just the aggregates. What's the problem? The problem is that we insist in clinging to them. Sometimes the aggregates are referred to as aggregates susceptible to clinging. Aggregates that we tend to cling to. Because that's what we do. We believe in the aggregates, that the aggregates are ours. Our, our property. Any of you who sat, and I'm sure you've all sat for 
Short time or long times in meditation, you know very well that my mind, your mind, doesn't belong to us. I mean, does anything but what we tell it to do, right? Goes all over the place. And we still insist, somewhere in the recess of our mind, we have this sense, it's my mind. Let the Buddha speak a little bit here. That's this quote with the uninstructed worldling. I suppose it's uh, most of us certainly. I'm included. At least partially. The uninstructed worldling who is not a seer of the noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in the Dhamma who is not a seer of superior persons and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, regards form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in-self, or self as in-form. He lives obsessed by the notions, I am form, form is mine. And he lives obsessed by these notions that form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, there arises in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. And he's not just talking about um, uh, developing a tummy here. But it's included. And... And then he goes on to repeat the same thing insofar as possessing feeling. He says he regards feeling as self or self as possessing feeling or feeling as in self or self as in feeling, etc. And same thing. And then he says he regards perception as self, etc. Then he goes on to say he regards thoughts as self, etc. And finally, I'll read the last uh, paragraph complete. He regards consciousness as self, or self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in-self, or self as in-consciousness. He lives obsessed by the notions, I am consciousness, consciousness is mine. And he lives obsessed, obsessed by these notions, that consciousness, consciousness of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of consciousness, there arises in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Inevitably. Same pains that we have with our children growing and changing. And when we cling to them, when we have this possessiveness towards them, it's the same suffering that comes from insisting that each one of the aggregates is mine and clinging to them. That was from the Samyutta Nikaya and from the same collection 
there is this um, quote, um, and this is in the words of uh, Bikuni, that is a nun, Bikuni Vajira. Not sure I pronounce her name right, but there it goes. Bikuni Vajira is hearing this verse. By whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of this being? Where has the being arisen? And where does the being cease? Now, just, just to explain a little bit. Um, she hears this, uh, this song, but she says, hey, who's saying that? Now, who has, who is this who has recited that verse? A human being or a non-human being? Then it occurred to her, this is Mara, the evil one, as many of you probably know. Um, Mara is like a, um, a negative deity, like the devil in a way, in Christian tradition. And, and deity, but somebody who causes a lot of trouble. They are just to make trouble. This is Mara, the evil one, who has recited the verse, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in me, desiring to make me fall away from concentration. Then the Bikuni Vajira, having understood, this is Mara, the evil one, replied to him in verses, why now do you assume a being, quote-unquote, a being? Mara, is that your speculative view? This is a heap of formations. Here no being is found. Meaning no, no solid being, nothing transcending and separate. Just as with the, an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used. So, when the aggregates exist, there is the convention of a being. You know, this bunch of aggregates I call a being. Just like if there's a chariot there, in the middle of a room, say, imagine it, and, and you call it a chariot. But it's a, a, a bunch of parts put together. It's only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing that the Bikuni Vajira knows me, quote unquote, said, sad and disappointed, disappeared right then and there. The good guys win. Was it Kent taught me the other day? And so, as uh, Vajira tells us, there is this relationship with ourselves. If we embrace the option of 
of relinquishing possessiveness has this extraordinary possibility of freeing us to cultivate an expansive experience of life and ourselves. You may say, all oh, this is very well, but if, if we let go, how are we going to look after to care after others, after the loved ones, the children, ourselves? Wouldn't relinquishing also mean washing our hands from, from looking after ourselves and others? And I say, quite the contrary, quite the contrary. Because when we let go of possessiveness, we do put an end to that, to those actions that are meant to fashion, to create, to fabricate an identity for ourselves. Sure, and for our children. Sure, that we do drop. We drop possessiveness, we drop the pursuit of identities. That's true to trying to manipulate ourselves and others so that we can get them to conform to a certain image. That's true. But this is good riddance. This is good riddance. I mean, um, care is something completely different. Care, true care needs to be motivated by an understanding of our deep interest and the deep interest of our children. And, um, by the way, that understanding cannot that easily come from just our thoughts. We, we really have to open up our hearts as well and, 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 and learn from our children. I know that you all do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm in no way assuming that what I'm telling you is new to you. I'm, I'm fully know that you know all this. So forgive me for insisting, but it is helpful to hear these things uh, said with... Uh, Clarity and uh, and uh, emphasis. So care can only be enhanced by this attitude of relinquishing control. Then we start. We begin to hear the deep intimations from within ourselves and from. Intimations of what needs to be done. So often in the parenting discussion group, you have reminded us how extraordinary teachers, what extraordinary teachers our children are. In ownership, we don't hear. In relinquishing, we hear them. 
In this last part of my talk, I'd like to talk a little bit more about relinquishing in, in my own experience as a yogi. In, in last year, I sat the three-month retreat, and along the retreat, this sense of relinquishing became very clear to me. Not as a, an idea in any way. I mean, the idea, what I'm transmitting now is ideas, perhaps, but experience is much more difficult to transmit. But there was a, a sense of, of experiencing things without anybody at the receiving end kind of thing, anybody, any uh, solid thing, any entity, I should say, at the receiving end. When I, when I wanted to describe this experience to myself, I came upon a word that's very similar to relinquishing, but for me it worked better somehow. And I'll have to explain it, but the word is devolution. Uh -uh. The way I learned that word is because I spent uh, a lot of time in Scotland and in England, um, six years in total, and Devolution is the word that technically the English used to, and the Scots too, the English used to refer to the giving back kind of uh, power to the Scots and the Irish. And, and it felt that it fits the situation. For me, devolution to myself in a way. I looked up in the dictionary what devolution means. And it says, besides the specific application to Scotland and Wales, he says, transfer of an unexercised right to the ultimate owner. Well, you know, I mean, dictionary writers uh, cannot do without an owner, I suppose. So they, they had to have an owner. But it's an ultimate owner which makes it... Uh, uh, much more benign. And uh, I, I think it's very interesting, the unexercised right. You see, the, the right over my, my uh, aggregates, it's so largely unexercised because, I mean, I haven't yet fully learned to listen to them. By the way, I'm referring to an experience in the retreat. At that moment, I could sense the possibility that the experience is fleeting. At this moment, I don't have that experience of, of uh, devolution, in a way, of, of successful devolution. It's a, it's a wish. But... You know, like, like the Bikuni Vajira was saying, I, there, there were those moments where I couldn't find anything solid to refer to as me. I felt I had entered in, into the flow of experience without anyone needed to 
organize that flow of experience. The flow of experience taking good care of itself because of the inner wisdom of that flow. I'm saying, if I let my mind do what it deeply senses, it's much wiser than if I try to make it do what I think it ought to be doing. That's the sense. And in that, by the way, I should say that in, in that process of, again, I, let's call it devolution of whatever, of, of giving power to the flow within me was greatly helped by summoning, in a way, or the memory of a hospice patient I had been visiting right before the, the, uh, the three-month retreat. His name was Oliver, and he, he died just before the retreat. And, and the sessions I had with him in which his mind was so clear and yet seemed to talk nonsense, you know. But you could see that there was something very profound there manifesting. I haven't had that experience with any other patient. And so it made a big impact on me. And I felt that, I felt like he was holding my hand, you know, when I was that. I felt that, that I could allow myself to, to die without dying physically. To die in wisdom kind of thing. So, at whatever level we, we can find expression for this uh, letting go, for this relinquishing, for this devolution to its ultimate, the ultimate nature of things, if you wish. At whatever level, when we, we are finally not anymore in the grips of the whims of ownership, of the compulsion to own, When, when we can let ourselves be touched by things, by all things, there is no shortage of, of uh, resolve to, to take care of others or of ourselves. And in those times, the times when a, a sense of really boundless freedom can descend upon us. Let's sit for a few minutes. 